Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to in prayer, that, that we have promises in your word that you will never leave us or forsake us. We have promises that tell us that you always watch over us, you care for us, and that, that you never uh, ignore or are ignorant of any of the things that happen in our lives. And Father, as we look around us and we see many of the things that are going on in the world around us that... Uh, extremely dangerous and threaten the security of our nation, threaten the security of our income, threaten the security of, of uh, everything that we have worked hard for. We know that we can relax because our security, our confidence resides in you, and you are the God who created all things, and you are the God who watches over us moment by moment. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the uh, book of Kings, we pray that you would Open our eyes that we might see the things that are here that God the Holy Spirit has to teach us, to challenge us, to think about the uh, trends of history, the dynamics of spiritual decline, and what makes for a strong and vibrant uh, nation. And we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking tonight in Christ's name. Amen. When First Kings, actually, belay that, we're in First or Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 14, or 16 actually, Second Chronicles 16. Last time we conti- were continuing our study in this section of First Kings 15 and 16, which focus on the, what happens to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, after the split between the north and the south after the tax revolt led by uh, Jeroboam I in the north and what happens to uh, each nation as a result of that particular split and ultimately what happens because of of, uh, the spiritual orientation that you find in each, each nation now. And what we learn from this is that initially 
There's nothing good going on in either the north or the south. Just because it's the southern kingdom of Judah and just because they have a Davidic descendant on the throne doesn't mean they're automatically blessed by God. Being in the right place in a church that teaches the truth and a church that has a pastor that studies the word doesn't mean that somehow that rubs off on people just because they go to the right church or is associated with a uh, ministry that focuses on the truth. There are a lot of people who get that idea, and they just sort of uh, feel like as long as I'm with the right group, I'm doing okay. And when it comes to personal study, personal application of the word, well, that just sort of falls by the wayside. wayside. That gets compartmentalized into usually Sunday morning. And it's amazing how that can sneak, that kind of mentality can sneak up on us. And it may not be there when we're in our 20s or we're in our 30s. And there maybe we have the um, characteristic of having been rather positive to the word when we were young. And we had a very dynamic spiritual life. And we were studying the Word, and we go through our 20s, our 30s, consistent attendance in Bible class, consistent Bible reading. And then we come to a time towards the end of our life, and all of a sudden the gear shift gets put into neutral instead of drive, and we start to regress. And that's what we'll see, at the, which characterizes the end of the life of Asa, the uh, second king that we have in the southern kingdom after the breakup. He is the, the, I mean, the third king, the grandson of Rehoboam. And he has a, a, a reign that gets high marks from God because early on he is focused on the truth. He knows that the only way the southern kingdom is going to have any kind of blessing because of what's said in the Mosaic Law is for them to be devoted completely and exclusively to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who gave them the Mosaic Covenant. And so he cleanses the land. He is involved in uh, overseeing what would be called a true biblical uh, revival. That term has a lot of negative connotations the way it's been used and is used in a lot of churches today, but there is a true sense to that in which there is a major turning by a large group of people in history, turning to the Lord. And as a result of that, there was tremendous blessing on the southern nation of Judah during the reign of Asa. But by the time we get to the end of Asa's life, he makes the mistake that so many believers make, and he starts to coast on past uh, past achievements, past successes in his spiritual life, And what eventually happens, if you hang around long enough, it's not that you'll get Alzheimer's. If you hang around long enough, once you slip into neutral, then it's not difficult to become negative. Because what happens when we go into a state of being in neutral and not being really actively positive. See, I don't believe there's such a thing as being passively positive. A lot of times people say, well, because somebody isn't hostile to the word, hostile to uh, doctrine, then they're, they're not negative. They think of negative as being antagonistic to the truth. But unless a person 
is oriented to an active study of the word where it is a, the relationship with God is a vital part of their life, they are negative. It may be a mild negativity. They're just taking God for granted, but they're slipping into a form of uh, just coasting in their spiritual life, and the next thing you know, they coast right into negative volition because once we slip our gear out of drive, then what what characterizes uh, being neutral is arrogance because you're either oriented to God in humility and obedient to him and grace-oriented or you're going to be slipping into some pattern of arrogance. And that is very easy to do. And then once you get called on that arrogance, either through some circumstance in life where God is bring some discipline into your life to get, get your attention, or you have a, a friend or a family member, or you hear the Word of God taught and God uses the teaching of God's Word to uh, grab your attention, and then what happens is you react to that, which is what happens in the case of of Asa. So last time we got into our study of Asa. Now I just want to orient you just a little bit once again to the timeline. Now I have resisted getting too detailed on what I'm getting ready to get detailed on. Does that make sense? Everybody confused? And I'm still not going I'm not I'm I'm not going to get all caught up in this, but every now and then we just have to pay attention to some things and and it gets a little technical, and it's a kind of technicality that uh, I'm mostly just going to summarize it and give you the answer without getting into a lot of the intricacies of it, and that has to do with chronology. So approximately 930 B.C. is when you have the split between the northern and southern kingdoms, so that Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, began their reigns at the same time. However, as I have pointed out in the past, the way the northern kingdom and the way the southern kingdom count the years that these kings reign is different. And it differs at different times in each kingdom, which is why you get some of the... Some of the apparent inconsistencies and contradictions, one of which we'll have to pay attention to in the first uh, first verse of chapter 16. And we'll save it till we get there. So we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam starting in 930. Just, just hold that date, 930. Just hold that date in your mind. Rehoboam dies first, and he is succeeded by his son, uh, Abijah or Abijam with an M as it is state, as it's written in 1 Kings. Uh, then he only reigns for about two years or so. Now, the, the, one of the reasons you have another problem here is because we don't know precisely when they die in relationship to the new year. And the new year in the south is celebrated at a different time of year than the new year in the north. Okay? You'll be thoroughly confused in a few minutes. If you think you're only a little confused now, just hold on. Be patient. I'll confuse you completely in a minute. 
So the three kings that we've got in the south so far, Rehoboam, Abijam, and Asa. In the north, Jeroboam lives from until about 910, which is approximately the time that Asa comes to the throne. Asa will come to the throne just prior to Jeroboam's death in the north. And then his son, Nadab, will come to the throne. He's, on, he's only there for about a year as we would count time. And then the prophecy that God gave through uh, uh, Ahijah, the prophet, comes true. And Jeroboam's line is going to be wiped out by Baasha. And then Baasha will reign for about 24, 25 years or so. And then he is going to ha- die his son Elah comes to the throne. Same kind of thing happens. He doesn't last but about a year. And then Baasha's whole line gets wiped out. And then Zimri has a short reign of seven days. Tibni and Omri have a civil war for five years. And Omri is the father of Ahab. Now that sets the stage for understanding the backdrop for Elijah. When you, and, and remember, the reason we got into this study of First Kings was because I wanted to teach on Elijah and Elisha. But we, I also knew at the time that there was a need for to go through First Kings and Second Kings for for the prep school teachers to have that that uh, information and background. And so our whole focus in these last forty two hours of instruction which I thought would be closer to 20, but you know how that goes. So that we would, take, we would come to this point, and all of this has been leading up to Elijah. Why does Elijah come on the scene when he comes on the scene at the beginning of 1 Kings 17? And to understand the significance of Elijah, just he just shows up. He's just one day, you've never heard of him, the next day he storms into the... Uh, throne room of Ahab and announces that it won't rain until he says so, and then he just as quickly disappears. To understand why that happens the way it happens, you have to understand this context, and the context is that from 930, which is when the kingdom splits, to 874, which is 55 years, the northern kingdom has been getting deeper and deeper into apostasy and idolatry and eventually the most degraded forms of pagan worship, the fertility cult, with the introduction of Baal worship through uh, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. And that is what precipitates the need for for, uh, Elijah to be on the scene. Now, what we've done so far is to look at the first king's accounts of Abijah and Asa. Abijah was not a good king. Rehoboam had some flashes of good at the beginning, but the bottom line is Rehoboam was accounted to be evil. Abijah followed in the footsteps of his father Rehoboam, and then Asa turns things around. So we have a very long reign for Asa, uh, approximately 40 years, 41 years, that Asa is on the throne, and this is a time of tremendous blessing in the nation. But then things are going to change again, and things will will uh, be affected negatively after Asa. In the north, it's all it's all negative. 
Now, last time we looked at Second Chronicles 14 and 15 because this gives us the primary data, primary information on Asa. Asa is covered rather briefly by comparison in 1 Kings because the focus of the writer of 1 Kings is to uh, uh, ex- explain how Israel has gone through the ups and downs uh, of blessing and cursing in relationship to the Mosaic Law and the behavior of the, of the kings. Now, this has a great application to us. It may not appear on the surface, but one thing you should never forget is what we see in 1 Kings is a divine viewpoint editorial on what makes history go the way it goes. And what makes history go the way it goes isn't uh, technology, it isn't military skill, it isn't education programs, it isn't welfare programs or the lack of it, i.e. what people talk about in terms of taking care of the poor or not taking care of the poor. It isn't any of the things that are emphasized in uh, in any of the political campaigns that we've witnessed so much for the last couple of years. Are, are you all ready for the next presidential cycle and to start for them to start running next week? I think they'll wait till January, and then we'll start for the 2012 campaign. But it's none of those things. The real causative factor in history isn't whether or not they're capitalist or Marxist or what kind of capitalism they have, whether it's a Chicago school or uh, Austrian school or any of these other things. It always boils down to their view of reality, which means their view of God and their spiritual life. That is the determinative causative factor in history. What ultimately moves things is always going to be related to that spiritual life factor. And so that, but that's an intangible. You can't go out there and measure it. You can't quantify it. You can't uh, take, deal with it in terms of surveys and polls and those kinds of things. It has to do with the attitude of the majority of people in the nation. So, in the North, it's apostate. In the South, it's going to go back and forth. And because of the apostasy in the North, there is tremendous instability. What's, what do you notice? Just as a surface observation at that chart, which side has stability? Stability in a monarchy comes from having the same person in charge for a lengthy period of time. And what you have look with, with that is that you have uh, Asa is the king for the longest period of time, but uh, Rehoboam has a reign of just, uh, just under uh, 20 years. And Asa has a, has a reign of just over 40 years. And during primarily those two, Abijah hardly counts because it's only a year, you have uh, eight different rulers in the north. Who's got instability? Who's got the most war going on? Who's, who is going to have the most uh, social upheaval and instability? Because these, I, these things like so, uh, social factors political factors, economic factors, all flow out of the core spiritual orientation of the people and orientation of the leaders. So we looked at Asa. We saw that Asa comes on, and he comes on strong. As soon as he starts off, we saw the evaluation in 
14.2, that he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Even though he messes up a little bit towards the end, his ultimate evaluation is that he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that ought to encourage every one of us. I take great encouragement from the fact that that Gideon and um, Jephthah and Samson were were just colossal spiritual failures in many, many ways in the book of Judges. And yet we read about them as heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And that ought to encourage every one of us that there are, that despite the fact that we uh, will fail in, and fail miserably at times in our spiritual life, nevertheless God deals with us in grace and there are times when, based on God's grace, we just rise to the occasion and trust him and that's what really counts. That, that's what gets marked down. God is not a God who's up there keeping accounts of how many times we fail. Some people get that idea when they learn about the judgment seat of Christ. And, oh, no, we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and God's going to bring up all my, uh, all my failures and all my sins and all the times I should have witnessed when I didn't witness and all the missed opportunities. But that's not how God operates. We don't see that in the Scripture uh, in the scripture at all. And so despite the fact that Asa has this failure towards the end of his life, he, the, the initial comment in Second Chronicles 14, verse 2, is they did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And, and then it's described how he removes the altars and the high places, and he does all of these things to cl- clean out the bad. And then he mandates that the people uh, obey the Lord and implement the law. And then he moves from dealing with the spiritual issue first to dealing with the physical issue of their uh, military security second. And he builds fortified cities and strongholds, and he makes sure the nation is going to be protected and that their uh, national identity is, can be preserved because of the, the military, using uh, the military and these fortifications to protect them. And within three years, he's tested by the invasion that we studied last time, the, million, in the first million-man march as the pharaoh of Egypt, who's really a Cushite, uh, comes up and invades from the south, and they are defeated and uh, soundly, by Asa, and that is described in um, verses 8 through 10, and they're, de- they're defeated at, at Gerar, and the uh, Israelite army captures a tremendous amount of plunder that is brought back, and this is used to enrich uh, the people and enrich the temple because God has given them uh, this particular victory. And as after that, a prophet we saw a prophet came to Asa, challenged him with the fact that uh, God would bless him if he continued to purge the land of the idols. And so he responded by doing that, which included uh, cleaning up the paganism in his own family, uh, his mother, uh, grandmother, who was also worshiping uh, at the high places and had generated and created a rather uh, obscene. Uh, Asherah. Then we come down to chapter 16, which is where we stopped the last time. And in verse 1 of chapter 16, we read, In the 36th year 
of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah. Now, what I want you to do is hold your place there and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. And we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 8. 1 Kings 16, 8, we read, In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirzah. So, according to 1 Kings 16, 8, Baasha is going to die in the 26th year of Asa's reign. But in Second Chronicles, it says that in the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha is going to attack from the south. He's been dead for 10 years. Okay, just one of those little contradictions somebody may bring up sometime and say, well, how do you explain this? Well, the explanation isn't simple. Now, you'll read a number of commentaries, like the Bible Knowledge Commentary, who will take it, take a popular, though I don't think a correct, approach to this, and they will say, well, the copyist somewhere along the line misread the number. Instead of 26, they read it 36, and that's what entered into the text. The problem I have with that is that there's no manuscript documentation for that. Now, that could have happened, but there's no... Uh, you, you look through your critical t- editions of your Hebrew text, and there's no manuscripts anywhere that have an alternate reading. It's not in the Septuagint. It's not in uh, any of the other ancient Greek translations, uh, Theodosian, or any of the other uh, Greek translations of the Old Testament. So perhaps there is a different and perhaps a better understanding, and there is, and it's just complicated. That means you have to think, and we have to think in terms of numbers, which, as you know, that is just not my uh, not my best uh, area of operation. Now, let me remind you, there's two ways in which the people in the ancient world would count the, way, the, the years of the reign of a king. The first way is called a non-accession way, and the other is the accession year reign. The non-accession year reign means that the year in which the, the king comes to the throne, for example, if the king were to die today, December the 2nd, 2008, if the king were to die today and his son were to take the throne, this would be the accession year. Now, the non-accession year way of accounting means that 2008 would not be counted at all as an official year in the son's reign. His official reign would not be counted until the first day of the new year. So this year would count. Now, what happens if uh, the older king dies on January the 2nd and his son takes the throne on January the 2nd? You have to go 363 days before you hit the next new year. That whole year would not count as his reign because that's the year in which he came to the throne. So when they add up the years, they would say that only the next year, the first official year beginning with the new year, is his 
uh, would be his first year, not the year before. So that becomes a little confusing if we're not aware of that way of counting the of counting the years. And, but this was the way in which the northern kingdom counted the years. The accession year system means that the year that the king began to rule, or excuse me, the non-accession year means that, I got that confused again, didn't I? The non-accession year means that the year he comes to the throne is his first year. I always get this backwards. It is his, it's counted as his first year. So if he comes to the throne the last day of the year, December the 30th, comes to the throne, then 2008 would be counted as his first year, even if it's one day. That's his first year. And then the year after the new year is his second year. And the accession year means that the year the king began to rule, uh, that year is not counted. That's called the accession year. For some reason, I've always gotten those reversed. So when we look at that and we go back and we look at this chart I put up here, Jeroboam comes to the throne in 930. That's his first year. See, his split occurs in 931, but he comes to the throne and the first official year is 930. Now, notice when uh, uh, one thing I left out. When this battle occurs, the battle with the Egyptians, that is dated as the 15th year in Asa's reign. And so if he comes to the throne in 910, then 895 is the year that 15th year, and they have that huge celebration. They cleanse the temple and everything. So from 930 to 895 is how many years? It's 35 years plus that other, that other year that's part of the year uh, that is counted in the north. So that would give them 36 years. So the way the writer of Chronicles is counting is in the 36th year from the time of the split. Now the reason I get that is if you look at verse 15, 19, it says there was no war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. Actually, that's the Hebrew translation is awkward there, and it's and the phrase of Asa is added, and it should read there was no war until the 35th year, and that would be the 35th year since the split between the north and the south. Is everyone clear on that? Just to summarize, verse 19 adds something to the translation which is of Asa, and actually it should read, there was no war until the 35th year. This is exactly that, that, that war with Egypt is in the, and, and that celebration comes uh, 15 years into his reign, which is the 35th year, exactly the 35th year from the split, so that in the 36th year since the split, this is when Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah. Now, why is he coming up against Judah? Because Asa 
has just demonstrated his military might, and he has defeated this one million foot soldier army, plus, plus he had about 300 chariots. And so, he, and so he's got this, this huge army that comes up from the south, and Judah defeats them. Now, there's also another factor that's going on. I pointed this out before, and that is after Rehoboam, or excuse me, after Jeroboam established the northern kingdom, and he established the two altar sites in the north, the southern side of Bethel with the golden calf, and the northern side in Dan with the golden calf, what happened to all the believers in the north? Well, the Levites who were believers all headed south into the southern kingdom. And as time went by, you also had other, uh, other believers in the north who headed south. Verse, uh, verse 9 uh, indicates that uh, in chapter, uh, in Second Chronicles 15, verse 9. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, uh, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. What kind of instability do you think that produced in the northern kingdom if all of a sudden you have a huge population shift to the south? And what what do you think the king in the north is going to be thinking when he starts seeing all of his people start heading south? He wants to secure his borders... He's not going to build an iron wall, but this is that kind of thing. He's going to, he, Baasha moves south to Ramah in order to block, blockade the southern kingdom so that he can protect the north from any possible invasion from this super victorious army that uh, Asa has had in the south, but he also to keep all of his people from fleeing down uh, to the south, because it's obvious God's blessing him, uh, blessing Asa, and not Baasha. So now I'm going to switch over here to this other, there we go, to this other program. Uh, have it all set up, and then the computer takes over and changes everything. Okay, here we go. This is the Dead Sea here. Jericho's just up here. Here's Jerusalem. If we backed out a little bit, you could see the whole view of the uh, northern kingdom is up here in the north, southern kingdom down here in the south. Here's Jerusalem right here. And right here at this crossroads is where the city of Ramah is. And it sat astride your major trade routes, your east-west route and your north-south route. So uh, once... Uh, um, Baasha moves into that territory, he's going to effectively cut off the flow of goods from the north to the south and from the south to the north, and he's going to control all commerce. So there are a lot of economic things that are going on in this particular action uh, that's taken. But as he sits in the south, Asa trying to figure out how to handle this. And so rather than challenge uh, Baasha with an army and have a knockdown, dragout battle there at Ramah, what Asa does is that he 
goes into the house of the Lord and takes all the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord, and he uses that as a bribe or as an enticement, a tribute, to the king of Syria to break his treaty with Baasha in the north and to invade the northern part of the land in order to pull uh, pull Baasha out of the south, out of Ramah, so that he'll have all his attention up in the north and this will free things up in the south so that uh, the goods, goods can flow back and forth and it'll free up all of the, all of the commerce and get them out of uh, their version of a, of a recession. But there's a problem with him doing it this way. And the problem is that he is trusting in his own manipulation of the events by bribing the king of Syria rather than trusting in God. So it shows that his faith in God, which was so strongly manifest in the victory over the uh, Egyptians, to now he is trying to handle his problems in his life and the life of the nation on his own without going to the Lord. And this is going to bring about a judgment from God on him. Now, he is successful in his maneuver. And the thing that we learn from that is that divine viewpoint systems of problem-solving are often successful. But that doesn't mean they're right, and that doesn't mean that believers ought to use them. Just because uh, systems of psychology and counseling uh, work doesn't mean that's the way believers ought to be facing and handling their problems. And you have hundreds of different models of psychology. Now, what's a model of psychology? A model of psychology assumes that human beings are made up or a certain way. Uh, one model may be that human beings are totally made up of matter. There's nothing immaterial about them. There's no immaterial soul or anything like that. Another model of psychology may be a deterministic model where people are just nothing more than a conglomeration of chemicals and atoms and everything is just determined uh, by the way all of this interacts with one another. And there's, there's literally several hundred different models of counseling like this. And then each model has numerous techniques within it. So somebody goes to a, a counselor, a psychologist for help you don't know what their framework is for understanding why people have problems. Is it deterministic? Is it behavioral? Is it uh, cultural? Is it education? I mean, there are just hundreds of these different views. And so you never know what's happening. And then when you get into Christian, so-called Christian psychology and counseling, often what you have in Christian versions is where they've taken a secular theory and they've blended it and assimilated it to certain uh, biblical ideas, and it's neither Christian nor uh, psychological, sort of like theistic evolution. It's not really, it's no longer biblical and it's no longer science or, or evolutionary. It's just a hodgepodge, just a mix. And so human viewpoint solutions, though, often seem to work. And that's because studies have shown that no matter what people do, if they just, that, that more than 50% of people have their problems resolved if they just wait a while or just talk to their friends. And more people have success solving problems that way than necessarily going to a counselor, psych, psychotherapist, or, 
something of that nature. And the point that I'm making is that human viewpoint often works. The devil is no fool. He promotes systems that work, but that doesn't mean they're right, and that doesn't mean that that's the way a Christian should handle problems. And so Asa is typical of many believers who, rather than trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace and the sufficiency of God's word, is going to try to solve the problem on his own. And he is successful. And we read the results of that in verse 4, chapter 16. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. They attacked uh, Ion, Dan, Abel-Mayim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. Now, if we look at the map, uh, all of these locations are in the north. Let's move up here. So we're looking up here at the area of the Galilee. Here's the Sea of Galilee here. This is this ridge line up here is Mount Hermon, and here is Damascus over here, and this is Syria. The Syrian border runs right up to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee and along the Hermon Ridge. This is Dan, which is the one of the northernmost points in the land, and the uh, village of Ion I J O N is just to the northwest of Dan. And Abel Mayim is just to the south of Dan, and the tribal area of Naphtali covers this area this of the upper Galilee. So what this is describing is that uh, the Syrian army is successful. They invade from the north and they take control of the northern part of the Galilee, north of the Sea of, of Galilee. And it happens that when verse five, when Baasha heard of this that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. And then King Asa took all Judah and they carried away the stones. They just completely dismantled everything that he had built at Ramah. And with those uh, tools and with those resources, they built two other cities, Geba and Mizpah. And Geba and Mizpah are going to be located uh, to the... Get centered here to the southwest, southeast, and northwest. If Ramah is right here at the crossroads, then these towns flank it to the north and the south, so that the king of Judah is now going to be able to control these trade routes, and he can't be cut off by the king of the northern kingdom in, in Israel. But at that time, he is going to be challenged by God with the fact that he has failed to fully trust God. Verse 7, we read, At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God. See, some people can say, Well, you know, I can solve my problem. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to claim promises, and then I'm going to do this. Rather than trusting in the promise and the solution of God. So he has uh, executed our, uh, the pl- human viewpoint plan to rely on the king of Syria, which is always a problem is- Israel had. They're either going to rely on Egypt or they're going to rely on Syria or some other human kingdom. And Je- this is why Jeremiah said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, for the arm of flesh is weak. Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from
from your hand. So Asa could have had a conquest of Syria technically. Verse 8, were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Didn't you learn anything from what you just went through, that God is greater than any size army? Verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Didn't you ever wonder what the context of that promise was? Isn't that a great verse? God is looking for those who are really committed to trusting him and to relying upon the sufficiency of his word and his grace. And the problem is, is that even those who are supposed to be uh, mature spiritually often fail to take God at his word and to trust in his sufficiency. And that's, that's the problem with Asa. He will not trust God sufficiently. And so the conclusion is in the last half of verse 9, in this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. There are consequences to spiritual failure. Now, the interesting thing is this word that's used for foolish. The whole concept of foolish in the, in the Old Testament is contrasted to wise. The wise person is the person who fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. And the saying in your heart, there is no God, isn't the position of the atheist out there. That's not the Madeleine Murray O'Hare or the other groups that are loud and boisterous about their atheism. The, the, the fool that that psalm is talking about is the person who, in terms of their mentality, the way they live, is operating as if God doesn't exist. And that's foolish. See, Asa is operating foolishly because he's operating in planning as if God isn't there to provide for him and to protect him. He's acting like a functional atheist, or he's, he is a functional atheist. He is not trusting in God, and so he is foolish. Sunday morning I talked about the fact that demon influence is a very broad concept, and it has to do with any kind of thinking that is divorced from the divine viewpoint of Scripture. And it can be very moral, it can be very good, it can be very religious, it can, uh, people can have, build churches and have a certain amount of Bible teaching and a facade of Christianity, but it's all demon influence because at the very core there is no dependence on the sufficiency of God's grace and God's word. And so it's all wood, hay, and straw. It's just nothing more than human viewpoint thinking, which is the same thing as demon influence or the thinking of Satan because the thinking of Satan is grounded and rests upon arrogance, the idea that the creature can solve his problems without being 100% dependent upon the, uh, upon the creator. And so he is, Asa is now going to be disciplined because of his failure to trust God to solve the problem and the way in which he's paid off this tribute to call off uh, the king of Syria and to get the king of Syria to attack, uh, attack the northern kingdom. See, what was happening before was that they were allied together, and so 
Uh, Asa was fearful that they might come after him and actually invade into the south, so he's afraid to trust. Uh, he, was, he didn't trust God. He trusted in his own wealth. Now, look at Asa's reaction, verse 10. This is the reaction of arrogance. When arrogance gets challenged, when self-absorption and self-justification get challenged, the reaction is anger and bitterness and hostility because the person doesn't get their way. They, I don't get my way. I'm gonna, you, you're going to confront me with this? I'm going to throw a temper tantrum. And so that's what he does. He's angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him because of this. Talk about shooting the messenger instead of the message. And Asa oppressed some of his people, and the word some there isn't in the original. He oppressed his people at that time. So he not only takes it out on the prophet, but he takes it out on his people. He becomes a an oppressive dictator as the king, punishing the people for his own spiritual failures. Then we come to verse 11, which gives us a spiritual evaluation from God on Asa's reign. Now, note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. That is the account that's in 1 Kings that we're studying in 1 Kings 15. And in the 39th year of his reign, and he did reign to 41 years, so this 39th is dealing with the 39th year of his reign towards the very end of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. Now, it doesn't tell us what the disease was, but something happens to his feet, and his malady is severe so that he can't, he can't walk. And in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now, this isn't saying that if you get sick, don't go to a doctor, just seek the Lord. It's a different economy, different dispensation, different promises in the Mosaic Law, in relation to uh, the reign of these kings of Israel, in the same way that that in the United States is not pro- Israel was prohibited from entering into treaties with other nations. The United States was encouraged not to enter into treaties with other nations by uh, George Washington, but that's not handed down from Mount Sinai. This was handed down from Mount Sinai. So, as part of the role of the of the of the uh, king. He was to seek the Lord and seek the Lord first. So rather than seeking the Lord, he seeks the physicians and he continues under divine discipline. And it's most likely we'll get into this chronology when we get into the uh, transition of the reign to his son Jehoshaphat, that it's during this two-year period of time to resolve uh, certain chronological problems that he actually enters into a co-regency with his son uh, Jehoshaphat. So those last, that last period, year or year and a half or so, uh, is a co-regency with Jehoshaphat. Asa is basically in hiding because of his illness and because of his misery. And then finally he dies, verse 13. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself. In the city of David, this is that small finger of land that extends to the south 
of the Temple Mount. We've seen many pictures of that. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David, and they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients, uh, prepared in a mixture of ointments, and they made a very great burning for him. This has to do with a celebration of his life because he was a much-beloved king, and Israel experienced tremendous blessing under his reign because of his earlier uh, positive volition and devotion to the Lord. Now let's turn back to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15, and we've already covered some of what, most of what's here in the short account from 1 Kings 15.9 when Asa became king over Judah all the way down to the end of the chapter. Verse 23, I just want to hit the last two verses here. The rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did, and all and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now, that reference there to the chronicles of the kings of Judah is not a reference to first and second chronicles. It was a probably a resource that was used by the writer of first and second chronicles. But these books, you have a reference to the, the chronicles of the kings of Judah, and when we get to it, the kings of in the northern kingdom, for example, down in verse thirty one we read now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? See, there, th- this was the records of their reign. Those were resources that the writers of uh, Kings and Chronicles used under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to write these divinely inspired accounts. But don't confuse these with the book Chronicles, because First and Second Chronicles was, was probably written by Ezra and some who were associated with him after the Jews returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity. That's not in existence at this time, which is still some four to 500 years before the time that First Chronicles would have been written. So don't get, don't get that confused. The conclusion says, but in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. See, there's no spiritual analysis there. We're just told he was diseased in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Now that is going to take us, that takes us up to about 870, some 60 years from the, uh, from the split of the northern and southern kingdom. Now, the rest of this chapter starting in verse 25, down through chapter 16, down to about verse 28, is going to deal with what happens in the north. And we've got just a couple of minutes left, so we'll hit that long-term reign of Nadab. Verse 25, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So if you look at the chart on the board in the second year of, of Asa. Now this is the synchronism. The second year of Asa using the non-accession year reckoning in the, in the north 
means that this is his first official year, whatever part of that year it is. That, that first year, whatever part of the year it is, becomes his first official year. His length of reign is going to be two official years. But in non-accession year reckoning, this can only be, this can be only one actual year. For example, if a king were to take the throne today, then from now to the end of December would be the first year. And then if he were to die in August of 09, then that part of 09 would be a second year. So you would say that that person reigned for two years, and it may actually be uh, less than one year. So Nadab doesn't last very long, even though it says that he reigned over Israel for two years. His characteristic, his evaluation, verse 26, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, who was his father, Jeroboam the first, walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. That was his idolatry related to the golden calf. Then, verse 27 gives the fulfillment of the prophecy that Ahijah had given his father that all of his sons, all of his descendants would be killed in a horrible way and they would be just left out in the open, uh, their bodies would be left out in the open to rot. Verse 27, then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar. This isn't Ahijah the prophet. This is a different Ahijah. The Ahijah the prophet was Ahijah the Shilonite from down in Shiloh. Issachar is a different area. The Ahijah, uh, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against him. See, this is the kind of environment generated by paganism. There's conspiracy and counter-conspiracy and rebellion the Baasha conspired against him, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all of Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Now, Gibbethon is located down here. That's it in red. It's just on the border with Judah in the south. This road here would have been the border just to the east of of Gezer, just along the Shephelah, which is the coastal plains of, of Israel. And I don't know why they were down there, probably trying to secure their southwestern flank. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Verse 26, Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah. Okay, now when did he take the throne? In the second year, did you see that in verse 25? He took the throne in the second year of Asa. He reigned for two years. So I can do this math. The second year plus two years is four, right? Okay, but look at verse 28. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, not in the fourth year. See, that's why I'm pointing this out is because if you start thinking about these numbers, you go, wait a minute, how does this, how does this work? The reason it works is because of the way they count the years. So Baasha kills him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Now that is according to, according to non-accession year reckoning, it would be the uh, second year. Uh, he went, uh, I mean, he, yeah, he becomes the, uh, he became king in the second year, and so this would be the fourth year. 
So Baasha kills him in the third year of Asa king of Judah, reigns in his place, and it was so when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, because of the sins of Jeroboam. So you have political disruption because of sin. Sin doesn't just affect your spiritual life. It affects every area that you're engaged in, whether it's your work or entertainment or whatever it is. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation, which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So this is just the uh, history of the various reigns that's kept in the um, uh, in the capital of uh, the northern kings. And final note, verse 32, and there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And so we studied that. Now next time we'll come back, wrap it up, in verse 33, where we tied together in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel and Terzah and reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So all the way through, we'll see this problem in the north that they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And the evil that they do is what? Genocide? Racism? Union organization? Slavery? No, it's none of the things that we think of as horrible sins. It's simply they establish idolatry and they refuse to worship the Lord. That's where evil begins. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be challenged by by your word and recognize that the same kinds of the same trends, the same kinds of things that occurred in the ancient world occur now around us because people are sinful. They operate on their own ideas, their own agenda, their own viewpoint, and they reject the sufficiency of your grace. May we be challenged in our own lives and our own spiritual life to recognize that your grace is sufficient and that you will take care of us and that we need to live on the basis of the faith rest grill and trust you completely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.